Welcome to the Anthro to UX podcast, where you will learn how to break into UX with an anthropology degree. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in user experience, you will learn firsthand how others made the transition, what they learned along the way, and what they would do differently. We will be discussing what it means to do UX research from a practical perspective and what you need to do to prepare a resume and portfolio. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of Anthro to UX. I'm here today with Charlie Skoll. Charlie is a pathfinder on the VR hardware team at Facebook, previously a senior user researcher at Facebook, and was a founder and videographer at Contains Live Culture for 20 years, previously also a partner at Filament with Jay Hasbrook, who we recently had on the show, who's also a pathfinder at Facebook, uh, also in the past, a partner at Practica Group for seven years, which has some other very well-known anthropologists on the team. And you earned your PhD at the University of Southern California in the same program, again, that Jay Hasbrook was in. So a lot of similarities today between a recent episode, but Charlie, thanks for coming on. And to start, would you tell everybody sort of your journey into uh, anthropology? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I was I grew up in Canada and I went to I did my undergrad at the University of British Columbia. Um, and initially I was a political science major. Um, actually didn't start at UBC, but I was a political science major. And um, I was doing a bunch of other sort of undergrad classes and hadn't really heard about anthropology much. But I had been an exchange student as a high school kid and stuff, and I traveled a lot. So I was always trying to bring in cross-cultural angles, no matter if I was doing a history class or a literature class or a politics class. And so when I learned about anthropology, I saw that I could kind of start with that cultural angle and then dive into things like politics, history, um, uh, economics, stuff like that through that first lens. Um, so eventually I switched over to anthropology, um, took a little break and had a very influential um, community college professor who kind of got me excited about anthropology. I took every class she could offered and then I transferred back to UBC and was a anthropology major from that point forward. Great, thanks. Um, and at what point did you get interested in video? Yeah, it was kind of a hype dream all along, I guess. Like I had this image of myself as this filmmaker and I was, I was growing up in um, British Columbia and Vancouver was kind of a burgeoning uh, filming location at that time. So there was a mm -hmm. lot of interest in sort of local media and film and stuff like that. And um, uh, well, you know, I said I was an exchange student. I went to France and was kind of exposed to Nouvelle Vague cinema and all this stuff. So I had this very romantic idea of uh, film at that time, too. So when I finished my BA at UBC, I was trying to decide, did I want to pursue anthropology or film? And um, and I decided, I looked around and I, f I found that there was sort of this, this visual anthropology field. It was pretty um, early days for the field at that time. And so there were only a couple of programs in the country and they were all sort of cobbled together programs. There's one at Temple and one at NYU and one at um, uh, USC. And then there was, of course, Manchester over in the UK. So I kind of explored all of those options. I also applied, uh, explored sort of some applied uh, anthropology programs. Mm -hmm. But um, the appeal of sort of telling stories from an anthropological perspective that had a, a broader appeal, that was the big, a, big draw for me. Like, how can this story get more people listening to it, engage more people, build more empathy, sort of uh, create more enthusiasm and interest in cross-cultural topics? Got it. And I asked Jay a similar question, but I'd be curious to know, you know, in your more recent practice, and I, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but have you, as you come into the more like, you know, the UX roles and now the UX role at Facebook and now the Pathfinder role, are you still leveraging video? Yeah, um, it was incredibly important in my consulting career leading up to Facebook. I sort of made a craft and um, my competitive advantage in those early days was really that I could be the videographer and the analyst wrapped into one person. Um, so I've used it throughout my career. I've been like a very active practitioner of it. I've contributed to the... Um, I've been very interested in contributing it to the applied community, sort of a, an active conversation and debate about it. So like 
I teach workshops at Epic on ethnographic storytelling through video. And, um, you know, I've, I've sort of moderated the, the film sessions they've had at, at Epic beginning with the first one. It was this idea to sort of bring a critical discourse about a practice that many of us were already doing in our day-to-day lives. Um, at Facebook, it's been a little tricky in some ways because of the challenges of the pandemic in part, um, where everything has gone remote and it's not that you can't do visual anthropology through remote portals, but it does limit some of the possibilities mm-hmm. in, in this new role that I'm in, uh, which I just started, you know, in the last month, uh, I'm working with the, um, the VR hardware team and a lot of the conversations there are about display and optics and sort of creating a sense of immersion and co-presence and sort of like that sense of being somewhere, being in Mm -hmm. place, right? That sort of embodied experience. And so an interesting way, it's a totally different way to think about visual representation to me, but I'm excited to see how those skills will kind of kick in as I kind of ramp up in this new space as well. Got it, great. And so maybe come a little, come back to that a bit, but to... To kind of go back to the earlier days, so you got your PhD, so uh, master's visual anthropology, PhD social anthropology. How do you end up in the business world? Yeah, so um, I, and I kind of went kicking and screaming into the PhD program in some ways because I, I, uh, I really want I want I wanted to be a practitioner. Like I viewed anthropology as like fascinating, but not applied enough for my taste. Like I had that conflict before choosing grad schools about. Should I just go for a straight up applied program? And there was nothing in my training at USC that was particularly oriented towards an applied context. They're really grooming people to be, you know, like other academics and stuff, mm-hmm. as, as many programs do. Um, but they they weren't funding master students. So my plan was just to get the masters and then move on. But they were funding PhD students. And um, so I kind of decided I would go in, I, I was going to beat the system, right? I was going to go in for the PhD program, get the funding, and then just leave with the master's. But I found I really liked it in there. And, you know, my last name is Skull. So I had a lot of friends who wanted to know a Dr. Skull. That sounded sort of evocative to them. And so um, I, I kind of took it from there. And, um, yeah, I... Uh, I, I, but when I left, when I left um, the program, I was still sort of ambivalent about what the future held. And I had this kind of passion to try um, filmmaking as a career um, in some capacity. And so I was editing a documentary that I'd shot at that time. And I was kind of taking a little time off between the, the dissertation completion and sort of work life and editing this film. And, and I was looking around at jobs and all of the jobs in film at that time were, you know, entry level things where you were just like, protecting the sidewalk from people walking through commercial shots and stuff like that. And it was this very sort of mundane craft services, kind of not, not a very engaging space. And so at the same time, I was kind of looking for, for some money to, you know, like to pay the bills while I was working on this film. And I started reaching out, I I started seeing a couple of um, threads about applied anthropology consulting kind of jobs. And they were, they were sort of in that, um, what would you call it? Like social messaging space. So it was a company called Cultural Logic, and they were they were asking really interesting questions, and they were interested in working with young PhDs who had this kind of like freshness of theoretical grounding and kind of eagerness to contribute to conversations. And so the questions they were asking were like um, they were doing a lot of stuff around uh, messaging, as I said. So they had this whole project on watersheds that I remember, and they were trying to explore the Connecticut River watershed. And so they um, they were looking to sort of do all these interviews with experts in the field, and they wanted to pull out this kind of textual analysis that would identify sort of um, metaphors that might change the conversation around this sustainability issue and sort of how could we get people to think more carefully about or more consciously about how they were interconnected to the system in which they lived. And so, I mean, that, I, that was perhaps fortuitous. But, but the interest level as a newly in the job market person between the questions that I was being asked to think about as an anthropologist versus the opportunities that were available as a filmmaker mm-hmm. were, were incomparable. Like it was so much more interesting to go down that anthropology path. And so I did that consulting for a little while and started freelancing while I was still finishing up this film and started just making connections. And it became this kind of snowballing thing. But, but always there was this kind of curiosity out of the gate from the clients who were sort of interested in engaging anthropologists or 
you know, social scientists. They didn't really care if we were anthropologists. Mm-hmm. They just wanted a different way of thinking about the world. Um, and, and that was sort of intoxicating. You know, grad school was thinking up questions to ask myself and then asking my advisor if they were the right questions and stuff. And there was a sort of introspectiveness to it, which was great. But there was something exciting about people coming to you with questions they really desperately wanted answered, mm-hmm. wanted to understand. Great. So thanks for sharing all that. There's there's a lot in there to unpack. Um, one thing I'd just be curious to get your you know, your perspective on before we dive a little bit more into kind of the career journey. So you said you were working on a film, which was a documentary. Now, how do you view the difference between like the sort of run of the mill documentary and something that's more of an ethnographic film? Yeah. I mean, I think ethnographic film is, is a version of documentary in many ways. It's a storytelling technique, but it's also a form of analysis for me. So I don't think of ethnographic film as only being the end product. I think of it as being a data set as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, it really was a documentary film. I was doing a biography about um, uh, environmental psychologist Mike Cohen, who lived it's a long story. Anyhow, it was, a, it was a fun film, but it was it had a very specific intention to it, and it was not necessarily ethnographic. But having said that, I mean, I think the anthropological or ethnographic mindset is is part of the way that many of us view the world, right? So, mm-hmm. like, I didn't. It wasn't scripted. Um, I'd had kind of a plan for the types of information I wanted to get from Mike, but my approach to shooting this film with him was to spend ten days living with him essentially and hanging out and shooting a lot of casual interactions and stuff and to sort of meet his social networks. And sometimes the camera was on, sometimes it was off. So although the film wasn't ethnographic in its storytelling style, it had a narration to it. It had like a very clear structure. Like we had an intention going into it. The process of how to learn about that space, I think was very ethnographic, you know, focused on material culture, all those kind of things, you know? Great. And so, you know, early on, you eventually hook up with Practica, which today you know has other many well-known anthropologists associated with it. How did that all specifically come to be? I mean, you mentioned earlier you were doing, I don't know what word to use right now, but I think more or less you were networking, right? And, yeah, I was networking and, and freelancing, yeah. So, you know, networking is one of those things that, of course, you know, there's many people who maybe are resistant to it, but as as you know, this podcast is mainly focused on careers and helping people get into it. You know, you networking and ended up ending up working with Practica is a pretty good outcome of networking. Yeah, right. and and I had I shared some of those same hesitations about like networking. It felt like a dirty word. It felt like I don't know what my in- impression was at that time was that you were schmoozing people at a cocktail bar and handing out uh, business cards or something, right? But. Um, but I was trying to force myself to do more of that because I had been working as a freelancer, as I said, and I had like a number of kind of clients I was working with on a regular basis, but I, it, wasn't an, it wasn't sustainable enough. So I was living in New York at the time and I wanted to sort of increase my, um, my range of people I was working with. And I, I liked the freedom of freelancing at that time. And so there was a, there was a group, uh, a chat group that I was part of then called Anthro Design. And I was living in Brooklyn, as I said, and there was um, there was a meetup that was arranged in the East Village. And, and I viewed that as a networking opportunity, even though it was going to be a room full of other sort of practitioners, ethnographers and designers and anthropologists. Um, and so uh, they were all people who were hustling for work just as I was. Right. And I went in there and it was a bar in the East Village and I go in and um they had people sort of sitting down and they were doing a little icebreaker and they said, okay, turn to the person on your right and introduce yourself. And the person sitting beside me was, was Patty Sunderland, uh, who was, you know, one of the the founders of Practica and she was the writer of doing anthropology, this sort of seminal, one of these seminal tomes in the world of sort of business anthropology. And I was kind of blown away. Like it sounds silly now because I've known Patty, this was 2010. So I've known Patty for over 10 years now, we're really good friends as well. But at the time, I was almost a little starstruck because I just read her book. And, I, you know, here was this person from the book who was kind of sitting beside me. And we hit it off. And we talked and talked. And what better way to start a friendship than by sort of heaping praise on someone's work, you know? And my dissertation work had been about the South Pacific. And in that book, they had this whole chapter about 
um, gender and identity and, and um, the, the trans-Tasman area, so Australia and New Zealand. And, and they had written so succinctly what I had sort of dragged out through 70 pages of dissertation or something. And so I was like, saying, I wish you'd published this before my dissertation. This would have been very helpful. Anyhow, uh, so began a friendship. And it really was a friendship and, um, from early on. And we just sort of stayed in one another's orbit. So we kind of, uh, every, every couple months, we'd meet up for coffee and sort of check in with each other. And, you know, we'd meet up at, at conferences and stuff and kind of hang out there. And eventually that sort of turned into um, opportunities to sort of collaborate and bring me in on, on projects. And, and Practica had always used a lot of um, video in their, their practice. They were doing mostly consumer, consumer insights research at that time. And uh, so they were, they were interested in that capability as well. Um, but, but yeah, it was like a dream come true, that collaboration, because it was such a, it was a small group. It was like six partners. Um, and I started out as sort of an, a junior partner um, but it was a very flat hierarchy and that was deliberate. Like none of them wanted to manage people. They wanted to practice. They wanted mm-hmm. to be out in the field and then they wanted to write about it. And I really like that, uh, balance they were all looking for between, you know, doing the work, but not having their careers feel like just a series of endless projects, but adding up to something more than that. They really felt like they needed to give back to the community and to think critically about, this fascinating data set that they had been gathering for many years at that time, which was like the culture of consumption and consumer insights. What do those things mean? Yeah. And they've certainly given back many forms from books to all of their participation in all of the uh, conferences and everything else. And, um, but you also, so aside from your work there, you know, you have your own agency essentially, right? Moving, moving forward as well, which you did for about 20 years. And so how did your work there maybe differ from Practica? Was it pretty much the same type of work or was there any nuance to that? Well, Contains Live Culture started out as a joke. It was sort of the idea of like what you would read on a yogurt container, right? Contains Live Culture. So I was just playing around with this goofy idea. But it, it was my intention that it would kind of live on as this continuous ethnographic uh, video, ethnographic film kind of entity of my practice. So it was work that I was doing on the side. Um, I did a lot of, uh, I was doing kind of promotional. I had this business model for a while that was doing these, it was a sliding scale um, payment scheme, but I would do these promotional documentaries for nonprofits as a way to kind of raise their profile or put on their websites or sort of tell the story of the work they were doing. And I was telling them from a promotional standpoint, like kind of trying to pull in some marketing savvy into it, but also like giving it this earthy ethnographic user driven or sort of participant driven storytelling to it. Um, so that, that's what that became was a vessel to do these kind of side projects that, that weren't necessarily well paid or, or sometimes paid at all, but they were, they were important for nourishing the soul, you know? Um, yeah. But, uh, there were, there were other people along the way too. uh, John, John Wendell, um, before joining Practica, he and I had worked together a ton and he was, he had sort of this niche um, focus in the healthcare and pharmaceutical industry. So I learned a lot about that space. Um, Ben Cheslick, who just wrote a book along with Mike Youngblood that I think is really fantastic about user ecosystems. Um, So there was like a lot of people who, who seemed like just big names to me at the time, which seems silly now knowing them all as people but they quickly became just part of my social, intellectual, collegial community. And aside from, you know, maybe delivering on the value that you needed to provide as part of the sort of partnerships that you were engaged in, was there anything else about, you know, the networking that you found particularly useful in that, that period of your life? Because obviously, as you're saying, I mean, you did connect up with some relatively influential people in our space. Yeah. And, and, and so like on the one hand, place didn't matter, right? Like I, I was living in New York, but the projects could be anywhere. I mean, they were often in Dallas or Cleveland or Chicago. And sometimes like on a good day, they were international, right? But it also mattered to be in New York because there was a sort of critical mass of practitioners there who had sort of a face-to-face. Um, and it wasn't just New York, it was Boston and Philadelphia, that kind of Northeast area. Mm-hmm. There was enough of a concentration of practitioners that you could build those relationships because a lot of the um, consultancies at that time were really 
small shops. So it was maybe one or two people. And then they would sort of bring in freelancers or sort of help for projects on a project by project basis. So it was really important that trust was built because they were, we were working with very limited budgets, right? You had to make the most out of them. Um, Yeah. So it was important to be in New York. It was important to sort of invest in those relationships, not cynically, not like in the, what can you do for me? down the road. I mean, that, that happened time and time again, but that wasn't the intention in with, with which I approached those conversations. The conversations was really learning about how other people were, were hustling in this world and what they, what kind of work they were doing and the sort of the natural curiosity that fueled those conversations built trust because the questions were genuine and wasn't networking. It was sharing and learning. Yeah. Which is a good takeaway, you know, or a good way to even think about networking. Right. Yeah. Um, and one of the reasons to really show up at conferences, I actually, you know, I never went to any during really all, well, during the whole course of my applied, uh, my applied studies when I was at UNT, I only started going after. And since then I have built more relationships where you can share and it's been much more rewarding just to have that kind of community since then. So for anybody who's maybe hesitant to, to join and engage in such activities, it, it definitely, you know, they should. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that that shift to collegiality is one of the big shifts that's important to make if you plan to move from an academic setting where there depends on the department, of course, but where com- competition is one of the ways by which you're measured, right? It's not that there's not competitiveness in the in the business world. Of course there is. But you're not going it alone, and you shouldn't think of yourself as going it alone. You should think about how you can build that network so that you're not going it alone um, for, for all kinds of reasons, you know, to develop your own craft, to sort of have uh, support on those tough days, but all, for all kinds of other reasons. And that, that, to me, was one of the most positive shifts between moving from that academic to that applied setting was the spirit of collaboration and cooperation. Yeah, great feedback, which is something, you know, for anybody who might work in tech in the future or just really almost anywhere at this point in time, right? We're, we're working on big, messy problems and there is really no way to go about it alone at all at this point. And the subject matter is usually just too too complex. Um, and that kind of helps us pivot forward towards, you know, some of what you're working on now. So where along the path did you actually start to get involved in tech? Yeah, so... Um, around 2009, I did a design, um, a design thinking project for the first time. And I was working with Jay, actually, it was this, it was, um, it was for this nonprofit that was trying to explore the global seafood industry from a design thinking point of view. And so there were, there'd been lots of work happening in that space, trying to like focus on seafood sustainability and, um, you know, whether it was innovation in that supply chain or whether it was sort of business models that were, were changing the way people were thinking about traceability or where their food came from, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But they had hired um, this, this design thinking firm that was, it was XIDO guys, but it was, yeah, it was called Central. And they were, they were trying to approach sustainable seafood as a system. And it was, um, completely mind blowing to me at the time. I mean, now this is very commonplace. Like we use mural, we have stickies on whiteboards. Like we're all kind of, not all of us perhaps, but we've become, these have become very familiar techniques. But at the time it was totally new to me. You know, I was working in this kind of, I don't know, academic inspired, um, practice where I would, um, we would go out as a team and do the, do the ethnographic interviews or whatever it was consumer insights. Then we'd go back to our offices, our home offices, we would all write up our reports and we would divide up the reports. And one person would write this section, another person would write that. And design thinking was completely different than that. It was um, making your thinking visible to one another, even before you were ready to do it. It was embracing that messiness. It was leaning into friction and tension. And how's this coming back to tech? You may be wondering, well, in that, systems approach to thinking about the global seafood industry, all questions were on the table um, for how to sort of improve the system as a whole. Like, was it tech solutions? Was it um, uh, incubating good business ideas? Was it sort of connecting funders with programs? And, um, 
And technology played a big, was one of the big options on the table right out of the, right out of the gate. And uh, Central was based in the Bay Area. So it had kind of, I was living in New York still and it had this kind of um, Silicon Valley venture capital energy floating around that space as well, even though they were kind of taking it from a social entrepreneurship and sort of sustainability angle. And so although digital advertising and some of those other themes had been kind of interwoven through other conversations about uh, consumer insights, this was the first project where I was really seeing how anthropology could play in that space in a much more active way. And it wasn't about building product necessarily yet, but it was about really contemplating the role that um, that technology could play in, in sort of recommendations and mm -hmm. future outcomes. Um, so from there, there was really no looking back. Like that design thinking approach to analysis is now like, it's how I do analysis essentially. Like there's other elements to it, but that I've carried that with me ever since kind of thing. Um, there were there were other sort of early signs that um, of sort of I don't know getting into that space of of using the internet as a data source uh, as a triangulation point. Uh, started doing some some webnography and ethno um, digital ethnography work as well, mm -hmm. not as a standalone data set, but as a complement to user interviews or focus groups or in homes or you know whatever shadowing activities. But that was also very um, early days for that. And, you know, I was talking about John Wendell earlier, who has had this kind of focus on pharmaceutical and healthcare. Um, a lot of the work that I did with him was with chronic disease states that were often very small um, population size. So recruiting can be very tricky for those. But there were these really active digital communities where people were talking about what mm -hmm. living was like and how they were kind of adapting to this lifestyle and stuff. So that became like a really important additional data source to start bringing into reports. So I would say like webnography and the internet as a data source became like an important part of practice um, around that same time too. And how did you work in video to that process? I mean, obviously it's it's sort of one data point in there, and but you know, is there any, did you find any way to incorporate it that was maybe more effective than others? Yeah. Um, so going back to that sea, uh, global seafood supply chain uh, work. So that started off as a project, right? It was just this funded project um, to explore global seafood as a system. And they weren't, they weren't clear on what the outcome of the project would be. But the outcome ended up being the formation of a new nonprofit that was going to work in that space. And it was actually, it ended up being run by the design company that had sort of done the research. They kind of laid out the, um, the findings. Everyone said, this is great. Clearly you've identified some really important needs in this space. We can see this having change. Now who's going to do it? And they said, Oh, well, I guess we will. So that became like a multi-year, like many, for many years, I worked with this group. It was called the Future of Fish. It's still out there um, doing great work. And they were really interested in bringing sort of the cultural analysis angle into sort of thinking about technological solutions. Because the truth was, you could come up with technology solutions for almost any problem that you identified in that space. But if there wasn't sort of human investment, if there wasn't sort of cultural alignment, the chances of them picking up traction were, were minimal. And so um, they really, to their, to their credit, to, in, from my bias point of view, to their credit, they really leaned into the importance of bringing in that cultural analysis component. And um, because it was a distributed team, not everyone could be in the field with me uh, when we were doing these, these projects. And so we're, you know, it's global seafood supply chain. So we're in Vietnam, we're in Indonesia, we're in South America and Chile and Peru and Belize, right? Like traveling all over the place. And um, it became really important to bring the context of those studies back to this distributed team. And video became like a really important way to do that. So yes, it played a key role in our deliverables and our reporting and stuff, but it also played that data set role that I was telling you about either also where we had like these technologists in the room who really wanted to understand the material culture of a fish plant in Belize so they could make informed um, decisions about how to write um, uh, 
an SOW that people could then bid for, right? Like <laughs> they needed that information. They need that visual information to understand it. And so I started, I sort of shifted. I'd been using a bigger camera by then. I started shifting to um, using a GoPro to really mm-hmm. give that immersive feeling of being in a seafood plant or in a fish market or on a fishing boat and trying to use that to sort of really create that rich data set that these other people who hadn't been there within the, with me in the field could then kind of riff off of and ask questions about and talk about. Got it. So, you know, super interesting. One thing that brings up to me though, is there is a time commitment to video. Um, and Simon Roberts spoke about it when I interviewed him for the Anthropology and Business podcast. You know, and his viewpoint was that it can be very valuable, um, but sometimes maybe the time commitment outweighs the benefit. So in your experience, you know, an extensive experience using video, have you sort of figured out a way to determine, you know, when does this make sense versus not? I mean, I've seen it done very poorly. I've, I honestly, where I've seen it be used as a way to sort of just glue together um, sound bites. And that really depresses me because it's, it's under, it's under, it's dramatically undervaluing the, the, the information that film can, can sort of transmit, but it is time consuming. And sometimes it's an act of faith. So, um, I was doing some work with Rita Denny, one of the other Practica members, uh, for for a car company, and it was a future of mobility kind of project. So we'd been, it had this sort of cross cultural component where we were like in different countries and we were sort of looking at sort of the future of transportation and urban settings, and there was no budget for video in that project, but I felt compelled to do it anyhow because I just felt like they're gonna see how much more powerful this is by understanding the visual material context in which people are kind of decision-making about how to navigate um, the transportation possibilities within an urban space. And that's going to be, that's going to be compelling to them. It's just, I know they don't, I know they haven't budgeted. I'm just going to shoot it very guerrilla style, you know, and I'm going to edit it anyhow. And so we did that we made these sort of like five little clips at the end of that project. And there was, we, of course we did all the main deliverables we'd already agreed to. There's a report, there's you know, all this stuff, but that, uh, that film was so compelling and it got shared around among, among execs within the company. And it actually fueled a subsequent project the year later where there was then a massive budget, on a massive, there was an adequate budget to do the video production going forward. It doesn't always work out that way, but that was one example where it felt really vindicated, where if you really strongly believe in stuff, sometimes you have to, to do it. And, you know, that's the proof of it. The proof of its value is through the doing, and you, you've got to take a risk to, to, to put yourself out there, but not every project needs it either. And so there did come a point where there was a sort of this dogma around consumer insights research, where it always had to be in home, whether the home was important to the story or not, like that meant ethnography. And it always needed video because video was truth, whereas writing was an analysis or something. And, and I don't think that's true either. So mm-hmm. there is a question of like leaning into those opportunities. But I guess my, my point is sometimes you've got to like put your faith forward and, you know, yeah, put it out there and see what people see how people respond to it. Yeah, and maybe also appreciate you know who are you delivering to and what kind of time do they have? You know, are they going to really read a long report or you know might this help with more senior level people who need a quick quick bite? Sure. Right. So fast forward a bit and <laughs> oh, sorry, you, did you have something? No, I was just laughing at how I'm dragging your interview out. <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's good. Um, and so, the so, so fast forward a bit. You now are getting into a UX role at Facebook, and while you had some, you know, while you were sort of getting into tech previous to that, you know, UX as we think of it today, and 
very much focused on digital products is a little bit different than anything you've shared thus far. Maybe there was mm. other projects we didn't talk about, but it's still a little different than than some of the that previous experience. So, what was that transition like for you? You know, what did you need to do to kind of upskill and get get ready for that role? Yeah. Um, well, I would say like the last. So I joined Facebook about just over two years ago. And, and leading up to that, like probably the two years prior to joining Facebook, Facebook, most of my work had been with two sort of anchor clients, this car company and then this nonprofit. And both of those um, companies were sort of looking at tech as, as a sort of presumptive, one of the presumptive solutions in that space. So I had become increasingly familiar with the language of how to talk about technology, how to sort of research it in the wild, as it were, uh, but not building the product. So it was still ending at the recommendations level of the conversation, but it wasn't on the building side. So like, you probably know this, Matt, like sometimes as a, as a consultant, you can kind of come in, you drop your truth bombs, right? Like, here's the, here's the magic. Now you go out and build it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I realized that I was missing that piece of the puzzle. Like, from, if I look back from early on, my frustration with anthropology had always been that it had this sort of wealth of knowledge, but it wasn't, because I didn't come from an applied background, right? It wasn't taking things, it wasn't proactive by its nature, the way mm -hmm. I was trained in it. And similarly, I was feeling like my recommendations were just getting up to the point of, here's a recommendation, but like, what next kind of thing? How can I be more involved in sort of execution or making things happen? Um, and so, uh, you know, an opportunity came up to, to um, a, a, a partner of mine sort of, she joined tech. So there was sort of this demystifying of it from like, how's an anthropologist surviving in big tech? I was sort of getting more of that feedback. Mm -hmm. Of course, I had Jay who'd kind of been in Intel before. So I, I knew people in those spaces, but I was, I was reluctant to give up what I perceived of as sort of the freedom of the consulting world. But I was also like very drawn to that building things stage of things. So I started to explore possibilities. And what was interesting to me was that anthropology was now part of job descriptions in a way that it had never been when I started out as a consultant. Like it was always a write your own job description kind of world. And now anthropology had been kind of recognized as being, as bringing a unique sensibility into that space. And so I explored around, uh, I, I decided I wanted to kind of try working in-house as we used to call it in the consulting mm -hmm. world, right? Like what's that gonna feel like? And explored possibilities. And what I found was a lot of companies were really interested in anthropology first of all, but they were also interested in sort of the diversity of practitioner experience that I had at this point, that I could sort of speak to all kinds of different industries with some level of, of insight not in-depth insight necessarily, but some level of insight. But a lot of those companies that were really small um, were, were, I think, reluctant to take the jump if they were only had one researcher on board or, or no researchers. Because like, yes, it's clear that you can help us understand the big picture and the big system and stuff. But what we really need to do is get our usability at a higher level right now mm -hmm. because we're having drop-offs. So like, what was the right balance between companies that wanted to lean into sort of thinking more proactively and systemically and companies that also had sort of these near-term immediate needs that needed to be addressed. And so I realized that I needed to get some of that sort of product level experience as part of my, um, data, my, my personal working database, right? And um, Facebook came along and they were very interested in, the, in that skill set, of course, but they also... You know, like they have enough resources that it was, I think, a low risk for them to sort of pull somebody in who, who wasn't experienced in um, user testing or usability research per se, uh, but who they felt like they could, they, could, um, they could take a chance on that. Mm -hmm. And so it was this very fortuitous kind of overlap where I was eager to add that skill set to my methodological toolkit. And they were eager to like bring in some more strategic thinking into a part of the organization where they had been more focused on the tactical level. Yeah. So right out of the gate, I was asked to be both tactical and strategic. And that was sort of the hybrid role that they wanted for me. And it aligned really well with what my own desires were. And so, you know, now that you're in a Pathfinder role, reflecting back on the, the UX role, 
which was, you know, as you said, a mix of both, but has the tactical component in there. How do you, you know, how do you feel about that experience versus, um, you know, the Pathfinder role? Are you more interested in the generative or? I mean, I, I'm absolutely more interested in the generative on the whole and the strategic. I mean, that's, I, I think it's hard. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm not right. But my assumption is that it's hard for anthropologists not to think big picture because of our training as sort of holistic thinkers and systems thinkers. So like uh, even a usability project was never just a usability project. So even when I was doing a very tactical thing, I always had three slides at the end, which were big picture implications and future directions we might go in and other questions that this had opened and stuff. That was the dessert for the people who had appetite for it. But I always delivered on, you know, the specific ask that was in front of me, which was like, what decision to make about, you know, the heuristics of a, of a user experience or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So now I, 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 uh, I can hear you on why the generative would be, or the pathfinding role would be more interesting. And I think a lot of people who listen aspire to get to those roles and and i want to come back to you know a little bit of your thought on how people can can maybe put a plan in place to get there but before we do that so maybe we can just kind of talk in in generalities about the role i know you can't go into like specific hardware or anything like that of course but you did mention earlier that you know thinking of essentially video in this sense is sort of new for you and so staying on that thread of video since you are so passionate about it it is it is interesting to think about, you know, the immersive experience as opposed to uh, the traditional sense of video. And so, um, you know, if you can, I don't know if this would would get into the space of maybe stuff that you're working on, but it seems like there is the opportunity to maybe present data in even an immersive way that could help people better understand that data set, right? So not not just building tools that are immersive so that we have, you know, immersive, say, corporate meetings, but actually presenting our own, fi- you know, our own data that, that way. Yeah, I, I don't work in the VR space, so I'm not sure what it would take to get there. But have you given that any consideration? And if that would actually help maybe sort of like, you know, sell the experience of what you've sort of observed? Yeah, a little bit. Um, like, and, and as I said, it's very early days uh, on this new team. And so I'm sort of seeing what the existing culture around um, how research works with um, these cross-functional partners and what the tolerance is for sort of um, novelty and storytelling. And And I guess one of the things that I would say is that there's, it, it, first of all, it's it's a very different, group of cross-functional partners for me than what I had in the user experience side. Cause now I'm working with industrial designers as well as software engineers and um, display and optics specialists. And there's kind of these whole subspecialties and human factors researchers, right? So like people who have been trained on sort of the physiology of, of comfort and stuff like that and ergonomic specialists. Right. Um, But having said that, because the space is so exploratory right now, I am seeing a lot of tolerance from cross-functional partners to sort of um, imagine different ways of helping to envision what the future might look like. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that there will be a lot of um, a lot of latitude for that if it can be sort of presented in compelling ways that people will be open to it because there's just so much um, eagerness for for engaging dialogue about what the future might hold for this space. There's a lot of question marks over things. Yeah, yeah sure. And a lot of opportunity. Um, so now in this role, I know you said that you're working on building a team. So, you know, that is not something that everybody on the podcast is involved in. And so how are you thinking about, you know, what's important to build this team and what are you looking for in other researchers? Yeah, well, I'm not so much... <laughs> Like building the team is maybe the wrong way to phrase it in a way. Um, for this particular project uh, or this particular role, it's a very future looking roadmap, um, perhaps uncharacteristically futuristic 
in terms of how distended it is from where we would typically be building. Um, so it's more exploratory. And so it's a, because it's, it's somewhat of a new process internally, there is um, a desire to introduce a new way to talk about innovation across disciplines. And so I view the Pathfinder in this space as doing some of the primary research, but also in sor- as sort of um, pulling in um, uh, information from other sources, synthesizing things, and then helping to build that sort of forum where these conversations can take place. And so sort of a facilitator role in some ways as well. Mm-hmm. So when I say building the team, it's more about sort of building a forum for us to have these important conversations. So there will be researchers pulled into that space, but it's not necessarily like a whole pack of pathfinders. Although there are other, there are other pathfinders in this space who I'll be interacting with a lot as well. Got it. And so also one of the things I spoke about with Jay that was interesting is, you know, how he's going about synthesizing all this disparate data because, you know, he's, and I assume you as well, but pulling on many subjects, right? You just kind of alluded to that. So while we have always worked with, you know, a variety of data sources, it seems like this role particularly presents the opportunity to, to maybe pull together more than maybe we're accustomed to or from many more disciplines than we're maybe accustomed to. So how are you coping with that process? You know, like what are you doing to sort of not lose sight of, of the big picture and like you know, practically get through all of that material? Yeah, um, you're giving me anxiety just asking that question because, like I said, it's early days. But um, and you know this from the consulting space, I'm sure that um, that we as anthropologists and ethnographers in these in these kind of business contexts, we're always learning about the subject area from multiple points of view. Like um, our clients may assume that the learning is primarily about. Um, the users or the respondents who we're talking to, the participants. But as, as, as researchers, we're also pulling in stakeholder interviews or pulling in all these sort of um, secondary resource, research, resource, um, resources. And we're also sort of doing an ethnography of our clients as well. Like, so I view the role of um, the anthropologist or the anthropologically informed researcher as being one of translation between these entities and so I am doing a lot of deep reading into sort of prior research and stuff, but I'm also spending a lot of time building those connections that same along the same lines of that networking that we talked about earlier. I'm doing my part as an anthropologist to understand the perspectives of all of the people who are bringing very distinct points of view into that room. And I feel like that is equally important to building trust that that trust building and sort of relationship building and knowledge building through relationship is as important as whatever we, uh, whatever I can read or, or glean on my own and synthesize on my own. And then providing frameworks um, that people can use so that um, the forum for sort of a conversation around innovation is not just sort of Charlie facilitating the campfire circle, but that there are specific processes that we can kind of hang our insights on, hang our ideas on and, and allow us to talk productively about what direction we might go. So the soft skills you mentioned in there, you know, we like to talk about rapport and of course in UX, you know, our business today, empathy is thrown around like crazy. Um, But those, as much as we talk about those skills, you know, having that sort of bringing that type of leadership to the process is also not something that's taught really in anthropology, right? We kind of give lip service to some of it, but it's not... It's at least from those I speak with, it's not really something that we learn in any kind of concrete way. And so any recommendations for people how to be sort of more, you know, maybe persuasive, and I don't mean that in a, in a negative connotation, but, you know, how to sort of build rapport really, you know, at that kind of level within Facebook and how to, you know, be persuasive in getting people to appreciate these varying perspectives and being the facilitator. I think that there's variation among companies. Um, Facebook has always struck me, like it continues to surprise me, the generosity of time that my cross-functional partners have for one another. 
and the spirit of collegiality internally. And I've decided to take it at face value and assume that that means the door is open to talking. And, and one thing I've learned as a practitioner um, is that people love to tell their story, you know, and it's a, the questions that we ask people are not questions that they're asked very often in their daily life necessarily, right? And so having like leaning into the expertise of someone and really going to them with an open spirit to learn what they know or to get some sense of how they're seeing the world or interpreting it. I don't, I don't know where that, I don't know how to teach that skill, but having that curiosity and that humility and similarly having a generosity of spirit yourself. So anyone who asks me for time internally, I give it to them because I want to pay back that sort of, uh, that culture of collegiality that I've, I've so benefited from. And going back to Practica for a second, that was always a thing I liked about that group was how approachable it was, how much desire there was to collaborate and to be collegial, you know, because it could have just been six private practices going off in the world, but the benefit was in sharing knowledge. Um, so in this space, I don't know, like probably I benefit a little bit from the gray hair, you know, like, um, I've been out in the world for a while, so people give me the time of day a little bit. But I think I try to bring like a genuine curiosity to those conversations. And that that has I, it seems to be serving me well in this space. And part of the way I learn is by hearing people tell stories rather than just reading it and understanding it on independently. Got it. Yeah. So you know, in terms of maybe some recommendations for other people, you know, it's a pathfinder role is not something you're going to walk into, you know, out of undergrad, let alone maybe even a PhD program, right? There's, there's, that's likely a role that you, you earn through demonstrating value and having experience. Um, but there's a path to get there for sure, as there is a path to get to anything. So for people who are interested in this sort of very kind of big open picture kind of problem space, you know, wicked problem area. What do you think they should be thinking about now if they have a couple of years to begin sort of planning for that process, you know, to, to get into a role like that? It's not necessarily like just to dispel for a moment. It's not being a pathfinder is not all about seniority either. I don't think um, it, it's also about having this kind of future oriented mindset. And so one of the ways that I transitioned into this role was, you know, I was telling you I was doing tactical and strategic work. And one of the strategic initiatives that I took on was to introduce speculative design as a methodology into the the ads organization where I was working at Facebook. And there were people who had used it before, but we didn't have a use case internally. So um, I was able to do this big project. I got sort of director level buy-in. I you know, that there was interest at the director level in this work. I was able to sort of um, make a case for why I thought it would sort of take the team in a different direction. Mm-hmm. And based on the success or sort of the, not the success necessarily, but like, yeah, it was a successful project that generated a lot of curiosity and interest internally. And then I was able to leverage that into um, this Pathfinder role in some ways, because I now had this sort of um, proof of concept internally where I had sort of tried something new and it had, it had landed or it had been interesting at least, you know, and changed the conversation that was viewed as important. But I guess like um, as far as like what you could do to prepare yourself for it, I guess it's sort of leaning into some of those, um, those anthropological skills like holistic thinking and not being afraid to sort of talk about them in business contexts not using the language of anthropology necessarily, but showing that kind of interconnected mindset. Mm-hmm. And um, frankly, for me, working with design, uh, you know, doing sort of design thinking and design research has also been really helpful because I think design is inherently optimistic, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it, the goal of design is always to make something better to improve it, even if it means not doing anything that's the goal is sort of either sustainability or improvement, but it's optimistic, right? And there's something about optimism that allows you to be a future thinker in a way that straight up anthropology training hadn't led me down that path. So for me, that collaboration has been key for how to talk about process and how to think more proactively and more and, and sort of bring that sort of sense of anticipation into those conversations. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And that's really what drew me to the design anthropology literature because, you know, stopping at being critical wasn't really enough. Yeah. Right. You know, it's it's really about proactively what can we do to now change something. Um, so, yeah, I'm with you there. So in terms of, um, you know, I know you have a lot going on. You have, it sounds like, I think you might have an upcoming talk. Is there anything you want to plug? You know, anything that you'd like to mention? Um, well, I am going to be at Epic, uh, the Epic conference um, this year. So I'm, I'm giving a tutorial on video ethnography storytelling using only your smartphone. So it's about sort of leaning into constraints and not, not allowing um, remote conferencing to limit our sort of imagination when it comes to visual storytelling. Um, so that, that happens in sort of the week leading up to the conference. And then I'm co-presenting with Sonia Atari, um, another researcher at Facebook, the speculative design work that I was mentioning earlier. Um, so those are, those are two things kind of coming up in, in October, early October. And if you haven't been to Epic, it's, um, yeah, it's a special community, especially when you can do it in person. So I'm, I'm really burning out on virtual conferences. <laughs> I'm very eager for the time when I can kind of sit down with people and have coffee or a drink and just kind of really check in with people because yeah. that community has been very important to my, um, not just like my advancement in my career, but sort of my, my enjoyment of my career, sort of the, the, the validation of the importance of the work um, by, by being part of that community. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a great way to sort of maybe sum up the reason to do it. And, um, you know, well-being in many ways, right, is sort of found through that. And so, I guess that leads us maybe to the last point, which is if somebody wanted, you know, was inspired by this conversation today, how could they get in touch with you? Um, yeah, LinkedIn is the best way to get in touch with me, probably. I'm Charlie Skull. I'm still the only Charlie Skull there. Charlie with a Y, uh, EY at the end. Um, yeah, that's the best way. And I, I do have one piece of um, advice that I was kind of reflecting on this morning to sort okay. of yeah, share please. with the audience. And and that would be like, whatever it is you're passionate about now, embrace that and lean into it because it is amazing how that stuff comes full circle. I'm constantly astounded by it. So like my own background, visual anthropology, and I was a Pacific anthropologist. So I was interested in sort of um, the Samoan diaspora, the Polynesian diaspora. And you know, in, in learning about South Pacific anthropology, I did a lot of work on wayfinding and sort of Pacific navigation and traditional navigation. And I'm finding that that information is really important in my pathfinding role. Mm -hmm. um, not just as a metaphor for how to think about pathfinding, although it is that, but as a really important way to sort of challenge the way we assume the world to be. What are our assumptions about how things must be? And how do we see things beyond the horizon? And who would have thought that that information, you know, about traditional Pacific navigation would still be inspiring me and in how I'm thinking about pathfinding for the future of virtual reality hardware. So, at Facebook. Yeah, at Facebook, right? So, like, those passions are important and they always come back eventually. Um, you, they, they will be with you for your whole life and they should not be like, yeah, they should not be undervalued in any way. Same with the yeah. visual anthropology. Now I'm doing display mm -hmm. and optics, right? Like, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm constantly surprised and amazed and pleased by that. So, yeah, you yeah. probably couldn't have planned it better. And not, or if you planned it, you know, you probably would, you know, how do I want to say this, right? I mean, you couldn't maybe predict that it would all unfold this way and that you'd be doing this kind of work, but it's beautiful that it has kind of, you know. Well, that's what my dad used to say about narration, like earlier in life, because it, it, trying to figure out what my path was going to be. And, and I was like kind of feeling sorry for myself. I said, well, all these people who look like they've always known what they were going to be. And he's like, well, that's the nature of storytelling is you tell the story about how you got to where you are today and everything indicates why you arrived there. So all of these stories, you know, when told shortly or in sort of short time frames, are indicative of like an uncomplicated path almost, right? Like how else could I be anywhere else than where I am today? 
But that's just sort of the human impulse to impose order over what was at times a chaotic journey, right? Like it always makes sense after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of failure, lots of zigzagging along the way. And that is usually dropped from the story. (laughs) It might be the most important part to actually hear from other people, but maybe for another time. So Charlie, thanks for coming on. really appreciate your time. Uh, Again, for anybody who's listening, they can look you up on LinkedIn. Charlie's cool. So thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. It was real, real fun talking to you. Enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you all for listening to the Anthro to UX podcast. To learn everything you need to break into UX, visit anthrotoux.com. There you will find all the podcast episodes and career coaching resources. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.